Funding for Smart Talk is provided by Capital Blue Cross, providing health care coverage accepted by doctors and specialists in all 50 states. Serving the community for over 75 years, Capital Blue Cross is behind you for whatever lies ahead. More information is available at capbluecross.com. Capital Blue Cross, live fearless. Smart Talk is also supported by Pinnacle Health, who has offered transapical mitral valve repair procedures for more than three years and currently serves as a trial site for 16 clinical trials. Information at pinnaclehealth.org slash myheart. Welcome to Smart Talk. I'm Scott Lamar. On today's program, we'll focus on Alzheimer's disease. Here are the stark numbers. More than 5 million Americans and 270,000 Pennsylvanians are living with Alzheimer's. By the year 2050, it's estimated 16 million Americans will be living with Alzheimer's. Alzheimer's is the sixth leading cause of death in the U.S., killing more people than breast and prostate cancer combined. Now, those are the numbers, but the reality is we probably all know someone who has been diagnosed with some form of dementia, and maybe even Alzheimer's. We're going to be talking about uh, a lot of the basic facts about Alzheimer's disease, but uh, one of the things we really want to get into today, one of the areas we really want to explore is uh, new research, uh, new treatments, if there are new treatments, and maybe the most important question of all of uh, how to prevent Alzheimer's disease, if indeed it is preventable. Joining us today is Dr. Paul Esslinger, who's a neurologist in Hershey. He's affiliated with Penn State Milton S. Hershey Medical Center and is a professor at Penn State University College of Medicine. Dr. Esslinger, welcome to the program. Good morning, Scott. Also joining us is Clay Jacobs, Vice President of Programs and Services from the Alzheimer's Association Greater Pennsylvania Chapter. Mr. Jacobs, welcome to the show. Good morning, Scott. If you have a question or comment, I know that there are a lot of people out there who have questions about Alzheimer's and probably even some personal questions about Alzheimer's disease. Give us a call, 1-800-729-7532. Send an email to smarttalk at witf.org. Dr. Essinger, I said that we would ask some very basic questions uh, for those who may not be familiar with uh, Alzheimer's disease. So start with some of the basics and then move move on to uh, some other areas. But what is Alzheimer's disease? This is a disease named uh, after Dr. Alzheimer, who described it a little over 100 years ago. One of the common questions we get is, what's the difference between Alzheimer's disease and, and dementia? dementia? Yeah. So Alzheimer's disease is one type of dementia. Uh, and there's a family of diseases that fit into this category of dementia. So dementia is a broad description saying that uh, an individual is suffering decline from their typical level of functioning. There can be many reasons for that, some of which end up being treatable, usually only a small percentage, about 10 to 15 percent. Alzheimer's fits into that category, which is unfortunately not treatable. And for example, there are others in this category uh, that your listeners may recognize, Lewy body dementia, frontal temporal dementia, Parkinson's disease dementia. Alzheimer's specifically is marked by two kinds of pathology, amyloid plaques and neurofibrillary tangles. This means that in the brain, certain proteins start to become misshapen. And as they do, the cells uh, start to decay slowly, the nerve cells, and this leads to shrinkage of the brain. And that as that occurs, then the functions of the brain start to decline, such as memory and word finding, uh, and being able to keep track of uh, things throughout the day and follow through on tasks. Um, so this is the basis for why individuals suffer symptoms of related to uh, what we call Alzheimer's disease. Now, the 10 to 15 percent that are treatable, what kind of uh, illnesses are we talking about there and how are they treated? When you say treatable, meaning that they are cured? Yes, so some of them, for example, are, are uh, metabolic uh, anomalies, such as B12 deficiency, thyroid dysfunction. Uh, another one is, for example, a normal pressure hydrocephalus, too much fluid, uh, cerebral spinal fluid or water on the brain that can be drained off um, through a neurosurgical procedure. Mm -hmm. um, so some of these um, are, are treatable, um, and your primary care doctor uh, can screen for these. Um, and they do have a excellent recovery. Mm. Let's talk about the screening for the uh, disorders that you mentioned, but especially Alzheimer's. I mean, this has been one of the challenges. 
may, you know, maybe no, we've been dealing with Alzheimer's and the growth of Alzheimer's for the last few years so much that on a daily basis, this is something you do. But it is not like getting tested for heart disease or cancer or, you know, other disorders or illnesses that uh, that uh, take a lot of, of lives out there or uh, inflict, afflict a, a lot of people. With Alzheimer's disease, there is no real test as far as a blood test go. There are tests, but describe how it's diagnosed. Yes, that's correct. We don't have a definitive screening test at the moment. So the annual Medicare exam, which once one turns 65, your primary care physician should be doing, does have specific items about memory and about uh, functioning uh, in terms of cognitive, you know, cognition and behavior. So that's a positive step that all primary care physicians should be following through with their patients. Um, uh, another one is these brief s screening tests, uh, what they call mini mental right. uh, exams. Mm -hmm. um, that beginning at about that age, uh, most primary care physicians or their nursing assistants should be able to do with their patients. They only take about five to eight minutes. And even if you're normal on it, that's good. It sets your baseline. Um, and that seems to be the, the most sensitive indicator at the moment um, of, of uh, detecting when there's been a change uh, in terms of your cognitive function. But you also rely on anecdotal stories from, uh, uh, from family members, for example, or maybe even from the patient, uh, his or herself, that, uh, you know, I've noticed some changes here. Uh, mom or dad isn't like they used to be. They're forgetting directions or uh, how to get somewhere. Isn't that correct? Absolutely, yeah. That, that often is the, the thing that carries um, an individual for a referral, for example, to a neurologist, um, is that they're getting lost while driving and they ended up an hour away, uh, or they're starting to get late, you know, late payment notices for bills that they typically would be paying. They're losing things in the house uh, very frequently. Um, they're leaving the car running uh, without remembering to turn it off or the stove on uh, and burning things. Uh, things that are really out of the ordinary for them that start to become more frequent. Um, and those are the types of everyday changes that are more than just uh, aging related changes. Mm. Clay Jacobs, those numbers that I mentioned, uh, they are astounding. I mean, when you think about uh, five million Americans today and we know that uh, we are living longer, uh, you know, the, the the population is getting older, you know, here in Pennsylvania especially. We're one of the oldest states in the, in the country. Uh, so when people come to the Alzheimer's Association or talk to you, ask questions, what are the kind of conversations they have with you? Well, and it is astounding. And we talked about Alzheimer's disease when you add other dementias in Pennsylvania. It's over 400,000 people with a dementia oh, diagnosis. So, now that 270 is just Once Alzheimer's. Once we start even going greater. Okay. So, right. so these numbers are astounding. And when you mention when folks come to us, Dr. Esslinger's comments about diagnosis are incredibly uh, important because most people don't come to us until well after a diagnosis or in the midst of that. So early diagnosis, noticing signs, talking to our physicians, all of those type of things are important because often folks come to us looking at care options when we want to be talking to them about how to partner with your doctor, how to notice signs, how to talk about overall brain health, and then be able to work with them throughout the disease process would be ideal. And even now when we talk about diagnosis, some of the trends we'll have a chance to talk about in are looking at biomarkers, earlier diagnosis, even the fact that the disease may start 10 to 15 years before we see a symptom. So that means most people are coming to us a decade or so after the disease has already started. And that's a something we're trying to shift to make sure we can do the best job available for families. How old are the people that are coming to you generally? It's a mix. If we look at our strongest population, it's essentially um, most often it is children caring for parents. So most folks Caring come members. to us in late 40s to late 50s. Uh, we see a whole slew of folks out, but that's kind of the biggest grouping of folks who are just trying to figure out what's going on, figure out how to support their spouses or parents, sometimes neighbors, folks in their community. Uh, but we see it right in there. We also see a lot more uh, younger individuals coming. You know, we, we're hosting support groups now by video for caregivers under 40 who are caring for parents with younger onset disease. So. I think the, the conversation is shifting, but overall, 
communities are impacted, no matter what you consider your community. It's one in three families in Pennsylvania know someone with the disease, and that's that's startling. You touched on something that is very important as part of this conversation, that is caregiving. Uh, that, you know, there are many people who are uh, caring for a loved one, a family member, maybe even a friend uh, who has been diagnosed with Alzheimer's if they are fortunate enough to live in their, their own home and can continue to do that. Uh, there are also many other people who uh, have to go to an assisted living facility or a, a nursing home. Those caregivers, the stress that they deal with, and we're not going to spend a lot of time on this, but it is something that uh, as the number of people diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease grows, the number of caregivers obviously grows mm-hmm. too, and that changes the whole dynamic. Absolutely. You know, we talked about the numbers of those with the disease. Pennsylvania, 700,000 people are serving as unpaid family caregivers. And so it's really important that there's supports available for them, some provided by agencies such as ourselves or other community agencies. Dr. Esslinger mentioned um, Medicare wellness screening. Just this January, they'll also include a care planning benefit that assesses caregiver needs as part of that process. And so we're starting to talk about caring for the person as a whole, and that means their support system. Even this fall, the National Institute on Health, for the first time ever, are holding their forum on how to impact care for those with the disease. So we see momentum. Right now, folks are doing the best they can, reaching out to family, local resources, but often um, in a reactive way as we see things coming about. So the earlier we can diagnose, engage families, or whatever the care system is, uh, the better the outcomes. And we're seeing that start to come into place with systems as well. From just what you described, it sounds as if, and Dr. Hasselbinger, you can uh, weigh in on this as well, that uh, with those numbers I provided in the the introduction, that government realizes, at least National Institute of Health realizes that this is growing, this and it's exploding. If you look at those those numbers by uh, the year 2015, 16 million, that there is a recognition that this is a growing problem. Absolutely. Even in Pennsylvania, you know, folks may not be aware there is a state Alzheimer's disease and related disorder state plan that the Department of Aging has put together. We've actually had the Secretary of Aging on the program talking about it. Yeah, Yeah, that's wonderful. It's those type of things to do support because ultimately families are going to go where they connect. So it may be their faith community. It may be their work. They're going to go to their immediate pieces. But there are supports in place that folks, we, we can help mitigate. We can help make things a little bit easier for them by changing systems and putting things in place for them because it just needs to. There's too many folks, the the personal costs, the emotional costs, the financial costs are so daunting that there needs to be more. You know, we view it as the public health crisis of this century. Mm-hmm. Uh, Dr. Arsene, would you agree with that? Oh, yes. Uh, in the beginning of May, uh, the National Inst- the uh, Congress actually approved $400 million uh, in new research monies uh, for dementia research. But if you look at the overall expenditure, um, for every $100 in research, uh, Medicare and Medicaid has to expend over 12000 in the care of someone with dementia. Mm. Uh, so the balance of what we're investing to find a cure versus what we're um, paying out in terms of care is still in- incredibly disproportionate. I wanted to talk a little bit about age before we take uh, some phone calls here. Uh, you know, uh, Clay was talking about uh, the age of the people that go to the Alzheimer's Association. Many people think of Alzheimer's disease, dementia, as uh, something that afflicts older people. Now, that probably mostly is true, but is it just older people? No, age is the number one risk factor for it, but we see it as early as the um, early 40s. Uh, actually. And for individuals with Down syndrome, for example, it starts in the 20s, in the mid-20s, because of their particular genetic makeup. Um, But that that group aside, uh, individuals who may have what we call a familial form will start to develop this young onset um, signs and symptoms in their early 40s. All right. Familiar form sounds like something that is genetic. Yes. Those individuals have uh, high penetrance, uh, roughly 50% of the members of each generation will develop the disease. So that is always one of the big questions. If uh, uh, a parent, a grandparent, has uh, been diagnosed from uh, with, with Alzheimer's, uh, is it a risk factor for the children? 
In most cases, um, very low risk factor. Um, those familial forms are quite rare. Um, there are known families around the world um, wh where that's been um, well documented. But for most individuals, it's what's called sporadic um, in the sense that it, it doesn't run in half of the members of each generation. Um, so with the children of those members, um, they have a slightly increased uh, risk, but it's only a few percent. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. Smart Talk is supported by Capital Blue Cross, providing health care coverage accepted by doctors and specialists in all 50 states. More information is available at capbluecross.com. Capital Blue Cross, live fearless. Smart Talk is also supported by Pinnacle Health, who is studying a new surgical technique that allows surgeons to make repairs to the heart without having to open the chest cavity and while the heart is beating. Info at PinnacleHealth.org. Welcome back to Smart Talk. We're talking about Alzheimer's disease today. Our guest, Dr. Paul Esslinger, who is a neurologist in Hershey. He's affiliated with Penn State Hershey Medical Center and a professor at Penn State's University College of Medicine. And Clay Jacobs, Vice President of Programs and Services for the Alzheimer's Association Greater Pennsylvania Chapter. This is a topic I know there are a lot of questions about. Give us a call, 1-800-729-7532. Send an email to smarttalk at witf.org. If you would like to leave a question on Facebook, WITF's Facebook page, go to the WITF's Facebook page and leave that question or comment. We also are on Twitter, at SmartTalkWITF. Again, the phone number, 1-800-729-7532. Let's take a phone call from Faith in Lancaster. Faith, you're on the air. Good morning. Good morning. Thank you. I have two questions, and then I'll take, I'll hang up and listen for the answer. And these would be directed toward the neurologist. Number one, why are, uh, when my mother was being diagnosed, she was presented with a clock without hands and asked to draw, uh, I think it was a specific time, and I'm wondering why that is a diagnostic test. But the second more important thing, I frequently hear and read about doing word searches, uh, learning languages, etc. Is it are those specific things the uh, uh, the help for cognitive decline, or can it be learning any new thing? Merci, Faith. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Those are a couple of the basic questions, but uh, the, the clock is a diagnostic uh, tool, right? Yeah, those are very good questions. The clock is a, a convenient way for providers to get a glimpse of an individual's ability to reason on the spur of the moment. Uh, so clocks should be familiar to everyone and how to read a clock, how to set the hands. So if you ask someone to put in the hands for 10 past 11, takes a little bit of abstraction to know that, well, 10 past is the 2, it's not the 10. Um, and so that's why it's, it's used, is because it's uh, quick and it's, it's uh, convenient, and it's also been shown to be uh, predictive. Mm -hmm. uh, Her second question, as she said, um, may be the most important, and mm -hmm. what that centers around yeah. is prevention. Uh, and, you know, she's talking about word searches. Basically, what she's talking about is brain activity and keeping your brain busy. What about that? Yeah, excellent question. Um, there, was, uh, there was just a report out from the National Academies of Sciences, uh, Engineering, in medicine that looked at cognitive training or cognitive exercises and found what they called encouraging evidence that it helps offset some of the age-associated changes in our memory and attention and, and uh, speed of responding. So uh, we encourage it uh, uh, very strongly. Um, but it's not uh, confined to puzzles or cross, you know, crossword puzzles or um, uh, things of this nature. It really can be any cognitive activity, a good shopping list, a menu, uh, planning your garden, uh, planning a trip um, with a number of uh, you know, itineraries, um, uh, a book club you belong to, a discussion group, uh, listening to smart talk. You know, I hope that does it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so anything that stimulates your imagination, you know, listening to music that you always love, uh, joining a dance group, it's really this variety of 
cognitive stimulation. But active rather than active. passive, right? Absolutely. I mean, I have yeah. heard people say, well, I watch television, I watch the game shows all the time. You know, maybe that helps somewhat, but television watching is a little more passive. Yes, yes. So it's that, and, and that's where, for example, some of the computer-based games that make you respond quickly or that track how quick you respond and how accurate can be another form of interaction. Mm-hmm. Clay, what about that with, when someone comes to the Alzheimer's Association? I mean, when you, do you work with them as far as some of these activities? So, and I, I think when we look at it, too, it touches on an underlying pieces that often folks think of dementia and Alzheimer's disease limited to memory. And we're talking about our overall brain health and, mm. and diseases that impact the brain. Often families, that's the first thing we do is explain because they see the person they care about changing and it's a little harder to abstract and think about it as a disease process that's impacting personality and memory and judgment. They just see the front side of someone they care about going through these changes. And so talking about that work, talking about brain health overall with those with a diagnosis, but even across the lifespan. And so similarly, recently, uh, The Lancet looked and looked at nine risk factors, things from uh, education, activity, exercise, cognitive work. All of these things get, can reduce our risk and hopefully do that. In fact, just in mid-July, because of the growing body of evidence, the association announced something called the Pointer Study. We're going to be funding over two years, almost two mil, uh, $20 million in research looking at lifestyle factors. Because if we look at this and we can reduce risk earlier in life, even if you look at for a cohort, if we could extend or delay disease onset for two to five years, how much of a difference that would make for families. So... Talking about overall brain health across the lifespan is really important. And then making sure folks come in with a loved one or in themselves with a diagnosis. Here's some of the things that are important and that we vary it, we try it, and we do it for our overall brain health. You just touched on something that's very important uh, that most people, and maybe memory loss is the first symptom that uh, a, a patient is, is presenting. But uh, I've heard stories about people whose personalities have just changed completely. Someone who was so, you know, friendly, so polite, so nice, who actually, you know, their personality changed to that they were not very polite, not very nice, kind of mean. Uh, and, you know, this is just an example of personality changes. Is that uh, correct, Dr. Arson? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. A, a, a hot area for search is what is it that allows the disease to spread in the brain, because that's what it does. It spreads from the memory area where it typically starts, but to other areas such as the emotion, personality, and reasoning and judgment areas. Mm. Let's take some more phone calls. Cecilia is in New Hampshire and still listens. And uh, Cecilia, you're our, you're our first New Hampshire listener. Thank you very much. <laughs> Hi. Good morning. Good morning. Greetings from sunny New Hampshire. <laughs> well, it's, uh, it's not quite sunny here in Pennsylvania. But what oh, good. And thanks to my mom for alerting me to this uh, conversation. Um, my future daughter-in-law's mother has just been diagnosed with early-onset Alzheimer's, and I understand that that can be more intense than later-onset Alzheimer's. So I'm wondering if you could talk about the differences between the two and what can be done when it is diagnosed early, and I will take my call off the air. All right. Thanks, thanks Cecilia. Bye. Yeah, I can add uh, just a couple comments on that. There seems to be a different set of genetic markers for the young onset. Uh, It seems to be a slightly different disease in terms of its etiology or in terms of what's causing it. And it is associated with a faster rate of symptom progression Mm -hmm. um, than is the later onset. Uh, So it seems to have a higher genetic basis when it does occur, Um, though the symptoms are very similar. It's just at a a slightly uh, faster rate that it does occur. Is it more difficult or is there a difference in diagnosing someone with early onset? Because unless that there there is that genetic factor and there's a possibility, well, this is something that could happen to me, uh, I would imagine someone in their 40s, maybe even early 50s, would be, no, this can't be Alzheimer's. Yes. Yeah, it's often um, uh, chalked up to stress, work stress, um, or depression uh, for a period of time before it starts to be recognized that it's even after being treated for that, the symptoms don't seem to be alleviated. But is is it treated any differently in early onset? Uh, no, the tr- the current medical treatment uh, with the FDA approved medications uh, really are the same. Did you want to say something? Well, I think when we look at treatment, that is 
really an exacerbated issue be- when we look at if somebody's waiting on diagnosis because they're chalking it up to work stress or other pieces, once you get a diagnosis, but for an individual in their mid-40s, the care management and the case management around it, they may have kids in high school or heading off to college or be looking at retirement assuming it's 15 years away, but we have this onset and this kind of insidious pace of the disease. So while the medical treatment may not, there it does significantly alter some of the supports in place and talking about planning for the future, being able to do it with a partner or family or whoever your support system is, because it's much different if somebody's in their mid-40s and all of a sudden they're faced with this diagnosis of a fatal neurodegenerative disease. What do you do from here? What is life expectancy for someone who has been diagnosed with Alzheimer's? It does depend on age. So, for example, someone in their mid-80s might have a three to five year um, as opposed to the young onset, which may be more in the 10 to 15 year range. For the, uh, an individual in the common age range of 65 to 75, it would be about 10 to 12 years. Someone, you mentioned there's a difference in, in age, but someone who is in good physical health, does that person live tend to live longer? Yes. Okay. Let's take some more phone calls. Susan is in Lancaster. Susan, you're on the air. Yeah, hi. Good morning. Good morning. I've been hearing a lot um, it, through the media and in print uh, magazines and whatnot about the impact and relationship of establishing and maintaining a good sleep pattern because I've heard, I've read actually, that during a really deep sustained REM sleep that amyloids are cleared from. Well, I think we lost her phone call, but got the gist of her question, and this is one of uh, recent developments. I've seen some of those same articles that Susan is referring to, and there has been a, a lot of research that uh, show, between the relationship in sleep and Alzheimer's disease, but what's the latest? Yeah, and Susan is correct. Um, the studies have shown that this amyloid accumulation, which are these abnormal proteins in Alzheimer's disease, do decrease uh, through the night. Uh, when one is able to cycle through the regular stages. So in that sense, consistent sleep through the night is considered therapeutic uh, and and way to offset uh, and protect, the, in, in a sense, protect against the onset of Alzheimer's disease or slow down the progression of the disease. So does that mean that if you are not sleeping well, that maybe you should s- seek some assistance in trying to sleep well, and I'm not, when I say assistance, I mean going to a sleep specialist or if you have sleep apnea, for example, uh, that deal with the sleep first. Is that that a good way to put it? That's excellent recommendation. Yes, Mm -hmm. excellent point. All right, let's take a call from Dr. Trent Nichols. And then, Dr. Nichols, I understand that uh, you uh, do deal with uh, brain activity, correct? Yes, that's that's true. I'm actually a neurogastroenterologist, not a neurologist. Oh, okay. but I've been working with a Quiet Mind Foundation to get some early clinical trials. We actually have a small publication, which we just published, where we use near-infrared light, which actually can penetrate the brain about three centimeters and also has a, there's another company that has a small probe that goes up the nose with near-infrared light. And this can probably put ATP, in other words, mitochondrial energy, into the brain. So there's a trial of Quiet Mind Foundation going on in the Philadelphia area and also one in uh, Temple, Texas at, at Baylor, Scott White. Okay, well, thank you very much for your call. I, I don't know if you're familiar with it. I saw you nodding your head, Dr. Hasselger. Um, there are clinical trials going on all the time. I mean, there is a lot of research. You yourself are doing research at Hershey. Yes, there are several dozen trials going on. We don't hear too much in the news about them. Um, there are drug trials looking at the immune system in the brain, uh, trying to knock out these amyloid plaques. Um, and uh, intranasal insulin, for example, in order to bolster the uh, metabolic activity of brain cells. And as uh, this doctor just mentioned, there are trials of um, uh, stimulation, uh, transcranial stimulation, uh, trying to boost the activity of of, uh, nerve cells. Um, So these are, are all experimental, and they're in trials. None of them have been approved by the FDA at the moment. We still have just the two medications approved by the FDA. So you may hear news reports about a, a new report, um, but the, uh, your listeners have to understand that this may be a single study, and it does need to go through verification for safety 
and for confirmation that, in fact, is effective. And I have to tell you that uh, when I hear those news reports, uh, you know, my mother has been diagnosed with Alzheimer's, living with Alzheimer's disease. You know, your hopes go up because it's almost always when you hear on, like, television news, for example, a breakthrough in Alzheimer's research. Well, that sounds like it, okay, that sounds like it's above the level of being promising. That sounds like we're on the verge of something. Are we on the verge of anything, or are we still just, you know, one thing at a time? So about two weeks ago, there was an international Alzheimer's meeting in London that brought together about 6,000 investigators. So we were looking for all the latest updates. And really what came through was what's... The push right now is on lifestyle factors, and uh, Clay mentioned the, Clay protect about, yeah. the U.S. pointer study. Um, and these um, are things such as managing your blood pressure, your diabetes, um, hearing loss, uh, depression, sleep disturbance. And these may sound relatively benign, but the estimates are that if these are really managed well starting in midlife and going into aging, that we may be able to prevent one-third of the cases of dementia, mm. uh, which is really substantial. And if we can impact that, you know, 35% of individuals who never develop it, um, that's, um, that's the direction that we feel we can impact, you know, most quickly, most effectively, while we're waiting to develop, you know, the most effective drugs. I mean, basically what you're talking about is healthy living. I exactly. mean, what many people would do for a healthy heart or, or, or something like that. Unfortunately, many of us Americans, the reason we, if we exercise or we watch our diet, it's because of our waistline rather than thinking about our brain. And Clay, you've talked about brain health. Not many people put the two and two together that uh, that kind of lifestyle does contribute to a healthy brain. Absolutely. And, and it's not that it would delay things for everyone, but it has a potential impact and has a potential impact to reduce risk. And as Dr. Esslinger mentioned, for a third of the population, the tremendous benefit that would have. And we know, really, we're, we continue to learn what's good for our heart is good for our brain. So when we talk about that relationship there. The more we can do to at least mitigate our risk, um, even with the disease, if the disease uh, presents itself later in life, we're still doing things that have overall benefit, hopefully also things that have benefit to our overall quality of life. You know, we're talking about heart health and exercise, cognitive activity, social activity, all of these things that impact us. And I think that's one of the things to be hopeful about, that there is so much additional coming out. I think we hear about this disease and about research more often than we did five years ago, 10 right. years ago. Right. Dr. Esslinger mentioned research funding has almost tripled in the past three or four years. So there is this momentum building, which may be cold comfort for folks dealing right now, but it does have some of the what I think is some of the brightest outlook that we could say in the past decade because we're finding things continuing to be verified that might have a have an impact. I saw a figure that said 90% of what we've learned about Alzheimer's uh, has come in the last uh, 20 years. Mm -hmm. So it, you know, we are, the research is you know, making some progress, still have a ways to go. Speaking of diabetes, and you both have mentioned diabetes a few times, uh, Ron asked, uh, is there a connection between, I want to pronounce this correctly, gliburide, metformin, diabetic medicine, and Alzheimer's? Not in terms of those medicines causing Alzheimer's, uh, but in terms of diabetes, putting tremendous stress on the brain and being something that promotes... Why does it put stress on the brain? Um, because of the fluctuations in glucose, okay. that the brain starts to metabolically become erratic. Um, and that's where the stress uh, on the blood vessels and on the cell function starts to come in. So if you really, if you think about hypertension, obesity, diabetes... Um, lack of exercise, all these put stress on the brain. So if you have any tendency towards potentially developing any kind of dementia, it really just promotes or pushes that process along. Um, so you can see by controlling those to uh, the levels your physician um, recommends that you're essentially buying time uh, of uh, preventing the onset. Uh, of no, those changes. Another email from Donna says, what delineate, delineates uh, the different stages of Alzheimer's? Uh, we, we can um, do that in two ways. One is uh, we can do it through imaging by looking at the changes in the volume of the brain 
or the characteristics of the tissue. The other is in terms of functioning, the types of functioning that a person's able to do with their speech, with their memory, with their daily tasks, such as cooking, dressing, bathing. Mm. So again, uh, there's not like that clinical test, uh, the blood test type. It's more observation as to uh, as to what's going on. I think we will in the next few years have a test for a predisposition to develop Alzheimer's disease. That's pretty clear. And um, how we use how we apply that and make that available to individuals, those who want to know, those who don't want to know, I think will be an interesting discussion. But I think that will be available soon. Mm. That is a there's a whole show right there when you talk about ethics and whether people want to know, whether they don't want to know. But brings up a good question. Um, I'm sure there are people out there that avoid getting tested because they don't want to know. They hear they hear us talking today, and they hear, well, you know, what can I do about it? Uh, I mean, it's an incurable disease. Um, you know, I I'm, maybe have to rely on caregivers, my children, or something like that. That, that, that. They don't want to admit that there could be changes in their bodies, in their lifestyles, you know, the whole family dynamic. I mean, are there people who say, you know, I don't want to do this, and what are the benefits of getting diagnosed? Several benefits. One, we do have uh, medications that will slow down the progression of the disease. Um, so one buys time um, in terms of being able to stay at home, you know, function independently or semi-independently. Um, the other is um, you may be able to participate in a clinical trial and, and uh, reap benefits from, from that, not only in terms of yourself, but potentially in terms of your children benefiting from discoveries because of your participation in that trial. Um, and the other is uh, in terms of advanced planning. Um, and I think Clay can speak a little bit more to that in terms of uh, anticipating. Your wishes and you know, mm -hmm. all those things, Clay. Absolutely. Yeah. You, you know, it provides an opportunity for individuals to be active participants in planning. So we talk about a general disease. Let's talk about driving, about planning for resources, about levels of care, you know, when you'd want. When we, when you interview folks with the disease versus their caregivers or care partners, their, what they say about if they'd want to be in a residential facility is vastly different. Often those with the disease say, yes, I would, and I wouldn't like to, I wouldn't want the burden, and often they use that term to be on you, or for you to have to make that decision. So you could be active participant in planning. A and you absolutely touch on it, and it goes to um, something Dr. Esslinger mentioned earlier about Medicare wellness visits. We don't yet think about brain health, we don't think about dementia, mild cognitive impairment as a wellness issue, but part of including it is to normalize it, that we should be talking about our cognitive health, that we should be looking at where we are and doing everything we can uh, to reduce risk, to live uh, long, productive lives as long as possible. And if it means that we identify something, the upside about treatment, care planning, all of those types of things are really important, especially as we see the field trying to shift to earlier diagnostics using things like biomarkers and those pieces so that maybe we reach a day where we can talk about primary prevention rather than dealing with symptoms a decade after the disease has begun. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. Welcome back to Smart Talk. We're talking about Alzheimer's disease. Uh, we're talking a little bit about uh, dementia and uh, the differences between the two. A lot of questions uh, we've gotten to so far. We have many more. If you have a question or a comment uh, I'd like to get in before our program ends in the next 15 minutes, give us a call, 1-800-729-7532, or send an email to smarttalk at witf.org. Uh, I want to go back to uh, a few of our emails here. We've gotten a lot of emails and some really uh, Really good questions. Um, Want to ask? Uh, can you discuss the relationship between medication and dementia? My sister's mother-in-law was treated for breast cancer, and I believe the medication she was treated with has been associated with early-onset dementia. The um, anti-neoplastic drugs, or those cancer-fighting uh, drugs, um, can cause uh, cognitive side effects. Um, and in fact, the National Institute of Health just sent out a request for research applications to investigate what they call chemo brain or these chemical uh, treatment side effects. Um, so they're clearly recognized as one of the side effects 
of um, cancer uh, treatment drugs. Okay, so um, let just clarify a little bit more because if someone is hearing this and they're being treated for breast cancer, we say, okay, wait a minute, I don't want a side effect that I'm going to end up uh, with Alzheimer's disease. Right. So none of these have been associated with progression to Alzheimer's disease. Okay. All right. um, they tend to be noticeable but milder, and they don't progress to the point where an individual develops confusion or dementia. But they are noticeable. Okay. And we have another email uh, says, uh, looking to ensure diverse participation in new studies because this person has heard, and I have seen this as well, that race has an impact on the frequency of dementia. However, studies frequently do not include enough people of color to prove or disprove the relationship. Absolutely. In fact, when we look at it now, overall research uh, often takes up to two years to get enough participants to begin the trial. Uh, we know African-American, Hispanic, Latino audiences were from 1.5% to 3% higher increase, or three times increase in uh, the disease. And so that participation is important. And also just knowing that there are trials available. You know, if we look here right in Pennsylvania, there are two federal right research centers doing that work. Uh, on Pittsburgh, they actually have an arm dedicated to engaging African-Americans in research. We have countless other sites doing work even right here in central Pennsylvania, there's work on biomarkers across neurodegenerative diseases, uh, pieces like the IDEA study. There are opportunities there, but there is, we talked earlier about the challenge even getting a diagnosis. So going from that step about getting a diagnosis and then involving yourself in research is a big piece, but it's an important one because we talk about increases in research funding. That means that there's finally starting to be opportunities and all communities need to be engaged, particularly those that are at higher risk. So it is accurate that uh, there is a racial component to it. Absolutely. Do we need to actively recruit minorities, African Americans, Latinos to participate in these studies? Absolutely. And there's a whole there's a slew of things that may impact that historical uh, experiences with research with things like the Tuskegee experiments, there are cultural considerations, overall access in some communities to healthcare and, and proper diagnosis or differential diagnosis, all of those things come in, and yet it is that important to be able to engage all communities, particularly communities at, at higher rates of diagnosis, into disease research, because we may find the key to something in that. You know, I'm sure there are listeners out there who are saying, okay, well, how can I become involved in a, a research or a, a clinical trial or something like that? Mm -hmm. From the association's perspective, we do have something called Trial Match. Folks can go fill out a profile, hear about all the research available near them, get regular updates. Some are as easy as quality of life trials online, some surveying, to more in-depth work. We try and work with folks like Dr. Esslinger to make sure the great work they're doing is in there. So whether somebody reaches out locally or contacts us, they're seeing about options near them. Uh, Dr. Esslinger, I'm sure, can talk a little bit about folks interested in getting engaged right here. So we have, for example, the IDEA study, which is a amyloid PET imaging that will inform an individual, this is a Medicare-funded study, uh, whether they have amyloid accumulation in the brain and uh, provides additional information to what they may have from a brain CT or MRI. Um, and there are other studies like this at the medical center, or they can check if they're closer to Geisinger uh, or uh, into the Philadelphia area, uh, certainly with Penn that has a center uh, for neurodegenerative disease. So a couple questions uh, related to that. Uh, when you say it's Medicare uh, funded, does someone have to be 65 and older? Yes. They do? Right. Okay. Uh, if someone wants to participate in, uh, you know, maybe be tested uh, early on, if they, you, know, you mentioned the amyloid uh, uh, study, is there a cost involved? Is uh, it something that insurance would cover? N not for that Medicare idea. Right, idea right. Study. That's sixty-five and older. Yeah, okay. there are some additional studies, um, PET scans outside of the regular CT and MRI, uh, which can be done through uh, regular imaging centers uh, that can provide uh, additional diagnostic information that you don't have to be sixty-five years of age for. But, but there, is there a cost involved? 
Uh, probably a copay, yeah, associated with their insurance. Okay. Were you say that? And that's when I mentioned trial match. Part of our hope is to make that a little bit easier for folks because there are a variety. And depending on, on somebody's ability to travel or willingness or cost, there are a whole slew of factors. Somebody may be willing to travel to Johns Hopkins or travel to New York. You know, there are a whole slew of things. You want to be able to be informed so that you can make the decision that fits for you and find something that, that you want to make a difference in if you're able to. Um, and I think we see it across the board, whether there's cost or copays, the comprehensive care that sometimes comes in a, in a trial setting to be able to see all of those things. All of those are factors. And the more people know about it and have opportunities, um, we're hopeful that they then can, can connect and feel empowered to do so. We have an email here from Kim, and I think that this is kind of typical, uh, a question that you probably are asked often. Uh, I'm in my early 50s. I noticed memory loss, uh, uh, and I went to a doctor, took a six-hour test, was told that I do not have Alzheimer's disease. A few years later, I did the same test again, and again told I did not have Alzheimer's disease. I find myself still forgetting things, probably at an increasing rate. Were those previous tests definitive, and do I most likely have another form of dementia? The big question here is when people start forgetting things, uh, you know, people will joke about it and say, well, yeah, old age, uh, Alzheimer's, dementia is taking over. But when do, should someone be concerned? Uh, Kim has been told twice she does not have Alzheimer's disease. But when you hear that, uh, Dr. Astonger, what do you think? Hmm. So beginning in our late 40s, early 50s, uh, most of us start to notice uh, what's called age-associated cognitive changes, um, things such as uh, pulling up a person's name on the spur of the moment or um, uh, remembering um, usually specific names and uh, dates of things that we typically would know, uh, sometimes multitasking. Um, that's where uh, the cognitive uh, training, uh, the cognitive exercises on some of these software programs um, seem to be of benefit. Um, my recommendation would be to look very carefully at your risk factors, so your sleep, your your uh, metabolic factors of cholesterol, thyroid, B12, uh, blood pressure, uh, glucose, uh, to be sure all those um, stress levels, uh, be sure all those are at um, their targets, because um, they may be contributing at that time of life to some of these symptoms. Um, it sounds like the uh, provider is identifying um, you know, is not identifying the kinds of changes that would be diagnostic of Alzheimer's disease, though the individual may be having what's called subjective memory change. Um, this is something which we typically monitor. So every year or two, come back in and we'll check again. Um, but in the meantime, I would be talking about, you know, how do you compensate for this? What techniques can you use to minimize these so they don't interfere with your daily functioning? Um, but this is where a diagnostic test for something like Alzheimer's disease will, in the future, I think, come into play and to say, oh, you know, you're really negative in terms of um, any kind of, or yes, we do see it there, and maybe these are very, very early stages of it and something, and that's the point at which we want to intervene, ideally. So in the, you know, the ideal world, we'd like a diagnostic test very early before it's symptomatic and to treat at that point so it never reaches the stage of becoming symptomatic. That's really where we'd like to be headed in the next uh, 10 to 20 years. Donna asked, and I seem to recall a uh, news story about this recently, what about any connection with artificial sweeteners? Um, I, I, yeah, this is an area where there's been a reported study of a connection. I've also seen studies like this with, for example, statins that showed in a large group of individuals a um, increase in the diagnosis of dementia after being treated with statins for many years. Um, it's, it's hard to know um, how concerned to be with that, um, except to try to minimize. Um, I, I say, say to individuals who take statins, you know, talk with your doctor, identify whether it's really important for you to be on these. You know, there's a cost-benefit analysis with it. With the artificial sweeteners, it's probably a good idea to try to minimize that. Um, it's probably not doing you a lot of good. Mm. Um, Are you talking about more than just brain health? Yeah, right. Okay. 
Uh, you know, again, this this is one of those things that uh, uh, so many people do without even thinking about it. Uh, on a, you know, the artificial sweeteners, for example, um, someone may be watching their waistline and thinking they're doing the right thing uh, for their heart, but in the long run, if you're going, I don't know, it almost sounds as if uh, too many, too much of anything could have an impact, could have a side effect. Yes. Yeah. Uh, so we only have a few minutes left, and uh, I, I think that we got to answer a lot of questions here. But uh, I want to, Clay, I want to ask you, um, you know, once we get to the point of someone has been diagnosed or maybe they have been diagnosed with dementia rather than full-blown uh, Alzheimer's, services offered by the Alzheimer's Association, and I also want to be able to give you a plug for ways that the Alzheimer's Association raises money, and the, the, the Alzheimer's walk is one of the ways of, of doing that. Well, thank you for that, and it is, I think it's an important piece, because we talk about services and wanting to reach people where they are in a whole variety of ways, so whether it's support groups or care planning sessions, education programs, Everything we offer has options available by phone, online, or in person in all communities. Even this past year, we opened a new office in Lancaster. It's all about trying to make sure that however folks get information, that they have a way to connect with us. And so whether that's through our website at alz.org slash PA, we have a 24-7 helpline with master's level uh, care consultants at 800-272-3900. We want to make sure we can be an entry door and connect folks to resources, diagnostic centers, other pieces. And all of that, as a voluntary health organization, is done through the support of volunteers. Our Walk to End Alzheimer's accounts for over 60% of the revenue we raise. It helps us provide, uh, last year, services to 260,000 Pennsylvanians. We under we funded over a million dollars worth in research, and that comes through things like our Walk. Uh, one of our staff has said, Walk isn't all we do but it makes everything we do possible. And so by reaching out to any of those ways I mentioned, you can hear more about the walk near you. And we will have, uh, and we probably already do, uh, have a link on our website uh, to more information at uh, WITF.org. Gentlemen, I want to thank you very much for being with us. Clay Jacobs is with uh, the Alzheimer's Association Greater Pennsylvania Chapter. Dr. Paul Esslinger is a neurologist in Hershey. He's with the Penn State Hershey Medical Center and a professor at Penn State's College of Medicine. Gentlemen, thank you very much for being with us today. Thank you. Thank you, Scott. Coming up on uh, Monday's program, people's retail habits have changed. When I say people's retail habits have changed, uh, I'm talking about Americans, uh, that uh, there are a lot more people out there, as you're well aware, you're probably one of them, buying your products online. And it has had an impact on the brick-and-mortar stores, the Sears, the Kmarts, the Pennies of America that have been traditional icons. We're going to be talking about retail here in Pennsylvania coming up on uh, Monday's show so be sure to tune in. Smart Talk is produced by WITF as part of our mission to deliver relevant, high-quality programming. Support for this program comes from Capital Blue Cross, which shares WITF's commitment to being a valuable and trusted resource for the communities we serve. Capital Blue Cross, live fearless. Smart Talk is also supported by Pinnacle Health. Its 11 principal investigators and nine nurse coordinators conduct research efforts to advance cardiovascular medicine. Information at pinnaclehealth.org slash myheart.